0: Go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name's Steve, I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church, and as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. We're only covering five chapters today. So I hope you brought a lunch. We're gonna be here for a while. Now, I'm not gonna read all five chapters. Uh, the five chapters that we're gonna to cover today uh, really go into detail about how the land was distributed among the tribes of Israel. And so for the last two weeks we took a look at the faith of Joshua and Caleb and they were really two examples of men who were faithful in their young years to trust God but also endured well in their faith to where you see them at old age and they're still trusting God. They're still seeking the promises of God for their lives. Because when God calls you into a life of following Him, He's calling you into a life of trust. He's calling you to believe that He will really deliver on every promise that He has ever made. But He's also calling you into a life of effort where you give all of your focus, all of your commitment into what He has commanded you to do. He doesn't just want to be part of your life, rather, God wants the totality of your life, He wants everything. So last week we finished by seeing Caleb ready to engage the enemies of God that everyone had feared the 45 years previous. He lived with a passion, though, to show the power of God through his life. And so when it came to the enemies of God, Caleb was basically fearless. It doesn't happen by accident that you have that type of faith. It takes an entire life of focus seeking to see a move of God in and through your life. You have to build that type of trust. You have to follow God wherever His revelation is going to lead you. It's an all-of-life commitment that demands intentional focus of engaging every area for growth and faith in order to build a real passion for seeing His promises actually work out in your life in real time. Because no matter the difficulties and inconveniences that happen along the way, God calls you to trust Him completely. The five chapters that we're going to cover today record a really detailed account of the tribal distribution of the land. And so I decided not to uh, do really uh, just an exegetical study on uh, mapping of the uh, promised land with you over the next few weeks, even though some of you would prefer that. I know the majority of you want to just get to the point. And so today what we're going to cover is is where do we see Israel either exerting faith in the promises of God by taking hold of the land or really failing to live up to the life and the measure of what God has called them towards. And what I think you'll see over these five chapters is that there is a stark contrast between the faith that we looked at over the last two weeks and the trepidation and half-heartedness of the rest of the people of Israel that spread over these chapters. Through their poor example, my prayer is that we can chart a better way to move in faith in our lives. And so I want to start reading in Joshua 15, but I want to skip down uh, to verses 14 and 15. Here's what we read. It says, Caleb, again, bringing him up, drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Shishai and Ahimon and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. And he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now, the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Saphir. And so what we see in this passage starting in chapter 15 is right when we begin to see the distribution of the land to Israel, it recounts Caleb's response and Caleb's action immediately following what we saw last week where he said, give me the land of Anak. I will go in and I will drive out those people that were supposedly giants in the land. But if you skip down to verse 63 of Joshua 15, you read a different tale It says, but the Jebusites, now the Jebusites were not part of the people of Israel, they were part of the Canaanites. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. You have to ask yourself, what's the difference between the faith and the actions of Caleb and the people of Judah that failed in driving anyone out? Well, number one this morning, don't be satisfied with partial obedience to God. Don't be satisfied with partial obedience to God. Obedience is ultimately about who you trust. And so what we saw there in verses 14 and 15 is the faith of Caleb drives out the sons of Anak, shows his faithfulness to the promises from 45 years earlier. Caleb did not deviate to the right. He did not deviate to the left of God's revelation. Rather, he stood firm on his trust in God and saw it through until the mission was complete. And so because of that, the life of Caleb can be seen as one of total commitment to the promises of God. We see through his actions that he could not imagine a life outside of living for what God had promised and moving to actually take hold of every ounce of God's vision for his life. But the issue for many people is that it comes upon you where you see the promises of God but then you look at obedience to those promises and you almost see them as two separate categories. See, so many people live like this where they have the promises of God and they're thankful for them, they're glad about them, they hope to one day experience and take hold of the promises, they look at it as an inheritance. But then the way that you actually look at yourself in light of those promises is almost like one of those entitled brats waiting for mom and dad to die. So that you can just inherit it by virtue of being related to that person. You don't see yourself as having any responsibility of living a life building upon those promises. You don't see yourself as having a responsibility to actually live in obedience to the design that God has given you, even though he is the promise maker, he's clearly given a design for your life. He's clearly given commands for you to obey, but you see your life and you've compartmentalized it where the promises and the obedience that God has called you to are two separate compartments for your life. It's not the way Caleb looked at his life. He saw the promise that God had made and then he said, I have to order my life to take hold of those promises. He's not an entitled brat where the promises of God are concerned. He doesn't just see it that by virtue of God giving the promises, he deserves it. He's entitled to it. His privilege is the reason that he's going to have the promises of God in his life. No, Caleb said, I've got to order my life around those promises. I've got to obey what God has called me to because the obedience that God has called me to is completely connected to the promises that He's told me to take hold of. Therefore, if I'm not obedient to God, I can't assume the promises. I can't assume that they're just going to happen, that they're just going to materialize in my life. The issue that many come upon is that you have to realize every promise God has made is a command. What do I mean by that? If you consider just the gospel of Jesus Christ, what's the command? Believe. And so what if you don't believe? Well, then you're disobeying God. It is a sin against God not to believe God. The obedience in your life, or lack thereof, ultimately reveals what exactly it is that you believe in. Because what you believe in is all wrapped up in what you actually trust in. The who or the what of your trust defines what promises you are actually living for in your life. So who are you supposed to believe? Well, you're supposed to believe God. You're supposed to trust Him. But for many, God has disobeyed for another who or a what in this world. So the fact is show me your level of obedience to the promises that God has made and I will show you how much you actually trust in God. You are obeying something or someone in this life. You are seeking something or someone in this life. But the question remains it's going to be spelled out by the very actions that you partake in, in this life. Is it God that you trust? Or is it something or someone else? Because it's actually double-mindedness in this passage that leads to the ruin of Judah. One of the great difficulties of the Christian life is recognizing more of your sinfulness and more of God's gracious work through and in your life. And as you recognize more of your sinfulness and the greatness of God's grace in comparison to your sinfulness, your repentance will grow in regards to both of those realities if you are a true believer. But the fact remains that if you don't grow, then there's a problem. And see, so many people almost spinning your wheels the same place you were five years ago, the same issues you were dealing with ten years ago, and you have to ask yourself, what's the problem? And really, there's a problem if you don't know that there's a problem. Because many people don't know. I'm just living a static reality. I'm not growing in my faith. Everything's great. God's promises are still true. Yes, yeah, promises are still true. But the issue is, if you haven't moved in 10 years, guess who's not going to take hold of those promises? You. you know, I can promise you right now, according to God's word, you're not going to see a single one of God's promises in your life if you're not growing in your faith. Because if you're not growing in your faith, then something or someone else is Lord of your life. It's not Jesus Christ. We miss so much of what God has for us in obedience because we refuse to label the alternative for what it is. You're not just weak. You're not just making mistakes. You don't just have a little faith. No, friends, you're not just experiencing lack of victory. You know what you're experiencing? Disobedience. Jerry Bridges said years ago, much of the... Failure of the Christian life is we refuse to label our sin for exactly what it is. It is disobedience. And so when we get down to Joshua fifteen sixty three, we see the juxtaposition between the faith of Caleb and the faith of Judah. There is a half heartedness with Judah. Judah moved in to Jerusalem. And so they're probably high fiving themselves, patting themselves on the back, looking at each other saying, great job. We moved furniture. But they never got around to telling the Jebusites to hit the bricks. They never got around to saying Jebusites, get out or die. They never got around to absolute, total obedience to God. They settled for so much of what I see people settle for today, partial obedience, half-hearted obedience. Or what the book of James calls double-mindedness. In James chapter four, verse eight, I think we have a great revelation of what took place in Joshua 15. He says, "The half-brother of Jesus writes, and he says, "Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's the reality. God will draw near to you if you'll believe. Cleanse your hands, you sinners." And then we like, well, I don't like that part. Grace, 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 God's grace, greater than all of my sin. But then we don't get around to dealing with our sin, do we? He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And that's a fascinating term. You will not see it anywhere else in Scripture. Doug Moo, the great commentator, theorizes that James actually created this term because you don't see it often in, uh, in antiquity. You don't see it often in Koine Greek. But he uses this term twice in the book of James. He uses it in chapter 1, and then he uses it again here in uh, chapter 4. And a term that literally means to have two souls, double-souled. It means to have two combating allegiances within the core of your being. And for James, what he's writing about is this allegiance to the world, but trying to have a double allegiance in your life. Where I can have one foot... And the things of this world, and another foot, and the things of God. And James says, You're double minded, and it's never going to work out. And this is actually the sin that the grace of God needs to conquer in your life. And what was James's answer to double mindedness? Draw near to God. Because when you seek God, it demands an all out effort. It demands all of you. You cannot have a double-minded faith when you are seeking God because when you seek God, it is inevitable that you will repent of sin. You can't cleanse your hands, you sinner, and you can't purify your heart apart from repenting of sin and turning your life to Jesus Christ. What James is saying, in other words, only one of your minds is going to survive. And it's not a given that it's the one for God, because if you only have half a brain for God, you got no brain for God. It's like a child being told to clean his room. And then you go into his room an hour later, he's sitting there. The room is still a mess. And he says, but at least I showed up. He says, but I'm here. I moved into the room. And what your child is saying is trying to do a Jedi mind trick on you. It doesn't work. He thinks his presence, he thinks his partial obedience to your command will distract you from his total disobedience to your actual command. You think showing up here every week pleases God? It's partial, isn't it? But it's not total. God wants what happens to you in the gathering to transform your life when you leave. God demands total obedience. Jesus was clear in Matthew 24 when he said, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either love one and hate the other. That's the only way that it's going to work out in the struggle for Israel in this passage is that their half-heartedness was a double-minded faith. They wanted the blessings of God, but they didn't want to pay the price for it. They didn't want to make the sacrifice. They didn't want to have the hard conversation with the Jebusites. (laughs) Because what if the Jebusites don't respond well? What if the Jebusites beat them? What if the failure first at AI happens again and the Jebusites are more powerful than they are? Judah was satisfied with partial obedience to God. But as James wrote, if you draw near to God, he draws near to you through grace. But that changes the very makeup of your soul. With God, there is only total obedience or total disobedience. There are no half measures with God. Because number two... The problem that so many have, don't quit before you have a chance to see God move. Don't quit before you have a chance to see God move. And so we see immediately, as soon as we start going through the allotment of the land, as soon as we get past Caleb, as soon as we see the victory in the hill country, where Caleb says, I want to take the land, so I'm going to take the land because God has promised that I can have the land. It may be that God will work through me. What's Caleb saying? He's saying, I have to put myself in an environment where God has the opportunity to move for me to even... And have a chance to see God move. And so he puts himself in an environment where faith to God's promises is necessary and Caleb sees God move because he didn't quit before he had the chance to see God move. So what did he get to see? He got to see God move. For so many you want to see God move. But then when the going gets tough the weak quit. And you've had opportunities to see God move in your life, but you weren't willing to change your schedule. You've had opportunities to move in your life, see God move in your life, but you had something better going on. It's one of my favorite things. This is going to be a little bit of a rabbit trail. It's one of my favorite things to see. We plan a lot of events here. We, we, we want to see people from the community come and experience the environment the village has to offer so that maybe they'll give us the opportunity to preach the gospel to them, whether it's on a Sunday morning, whether it's in a community group, whether it's in a discipleship group, whether it's me, whether it's you. I don't care who it is. I just want people to hear the gospel. And those amazing sign up. Lists hit the internet and weeks pass by and the sign ups don't show up. And then three days before, I mean, we, we schedule these things, you know that, right? We've pretty much learned how you guys work. Three days before we have to send an email to the membership and say, please help us. We've rented 32 inflatables. Please, we need you. And what I think goes on is, is you didn't sign up two months in advance because something better might come along. But three days in advance, well, you found out how unpopular you are and nobody invited you to anything else. And you're like, well, I guess I can help now. And I'm just picking on you, but the reality is That so many of us want to see God move, but we're really afraid something better is going to come along. And so we only have a half-hearted commitment to the things of God. And we have a total commitment to the things of this world. Friends, if you think something better is going to come around, then the environments of discipleship in your life, you have to ask yourself, what master are you really serving in this life? What is it that is actually commanding the faith in your life? Because every time Israel is mentioned in these passages from 15 to 19, you see a total contrast with the faith of Caleb. Keep referring back to his faith because it is so inspiring and everything that I read from 15 to 19 is so uninspiring. Skip down to Joshua 17. I want to start reading in verse 14. He says, then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua. And I love this because the people of Joseph represent two different tribes in Israel after the two sons of Joseph. But they label themselves as the tribes of Joseph for obvious reason. You want to know why? Because Joseph was an inspiring figure. Joseph had every reason to get mad and walk away from God. And Joseph just kept believing. Joseph just kept trusting beaten by his brothers, sold into slavery by his brothers, a slave in Egypt, accused of rape in Egypt, sitting in a prison cell for probably more than a decade in Egypt. Then he's redeemed out of that prison to become second in command of Egypt so that he can save his family. And he looks at his brothers after saving their lives at the end, and he says, "Were well, you meant for evil, God meant for good. What faith? Now compare that to the faith of the tribes of Joseph. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people? Since all along the Lord has blessed me. And Joshua said to them, If you are numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, Well, the hill country is not enough for us. All of the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both of those in beth and its villages, and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it and to its furthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. I hope you didn't miss what happened in this passage. They come to Joshua and they complain. They say, There's a whole lot of us and there's not enough land. And Joshua says, Cut down some trees. And their response is, But that's hard. I don't think you know how hard that is. And then he says, And you've got that valley over there. And they're like, Have you seen those chariots? We might actually have to fight for it. Keep in mind, they saw Jericho fall. Keep in mind, they saw Caleb's faith. Keep in mind, they've seen God deliver on his promises. They've seen God defeat enemy after enemy. And they've heard the promise. If you move in and tell them to leave, they will leave. And the tribes of Joseph, the descendants of this great man of faith, their response is, can someone else do the work for us? It's a shocking contrast I mean, I love the juxtaposition between Joshua fourteen twelve and what we see here. In fourteen twelve, Caleb is speaking. He says, "Now, give me the hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said." Now, think about what the tribes of Joseph say. They're not ready for a fight. They're just ready to sit around and let somebody else give it to them. That's not how any of this works. Such an irony that these are the descendants of Joseph. They are afraid that they might have to put forth a little bit of effort to take the land. And they say, Joshua, you sure are asking a lot of us. Friend, when God says move, don't hesitate. When God says take it, don't wait for somebody else to do it for you. So what does Joshua have to do? Well, Joshua has to do what he always does. He gives them a pep talk. He even goes down and explains the logistics of why this should work out for them. He counts them and he says, you got a whole lot of people to do the work. It's just to go do it reality is that many people want everything delivered to them in a prepared package. Sure you desire to grow in your faith. You desire to take hold of God's promises. But are there corners you can cut? Is there a way that you can do as little effort as possible and still grow like those that make sacrifices in their lives? You want God, but you don't want to take up your cross and follow him. You want salvation, but you don't want to have to repent of anything. And you hear the voice of Joshua come and say, that's not how this works. You've got the strength. You've got the opportunity. You've got the promise. Go take the land and make it livable. God has given you that responsibility. And if God gives you a responsibility, He will deliver it through your effort. Yet you refuse. I've seen so many people wonder why they aren't growing in their discipleship. Yet you won't serve, yet you won't go to a community group for any extended period of time, yet you won't join a discipleship group yet. You won't lead a discipleship group yet. You won't change your schedule yet. You won't do anything to make it happen in your life because your time is so precious because what you've got going on is so important because your hang ups and hang ons are undefeatable by the promises of God. And so you don't grow. And then what I get to listen to at the end of your time is that it's someone, Else's fault. I once asked someone that was leaving who said they couldn't make any friends here. By the way, if you can't make any friends here, here's the deal if that's a you problem, that's not a me problem. Some of you just need to consider that you're not that likable. <laughs> and that's why you don't have any friends. All right? I mean, if I can make friends, come on. <laughs> And I got tons of them. Some of them don't even go here, believe it or not. But the fact is, they were leaving and they said, I just can't make any friends here. And I asked them, I said, Man, have you, have you been to a community group? And they said, I went once. And sometimes I can't help myself. I said, Well, what were you expecting? I said, the first day, everyone just to fall in love with you? I'm like, well, I just felt awkward. And I said, because you are. (laughs) They didn't stay. (laughs) I didn't want them to go. But sometimes in life, you just need to be honest with yourself that the reason for your lack of community, the reason for your lack of spiritual growth is because you're not putting forward any effort. There's no commitment. There's no willingness to make the sacrifice. I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesus described the Christian life after his amazing grace to save us, all of him, none of us. His statement on the Christian life, I've already stated it in the sermon, but though it was to take up your cross and follow him. He said there will be sacrifices. It will be difficult. You've got to put in the work if you want to grow. Hebrews chapter 6 puts it this way starting in verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And I just want to pause there. You know what he's saying right there? He's saying God blesses effort. He's saying God doesn't overlook it when you make the sacrifice to commit to serve him. Verse 11, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Friends, I'll tell you, God's been clear in Scripture. Without effort, there's no discipleship. It's not going to magically be delivered into your life. Without sacrifice, there is no growth. Without commitment, there is no promise. Verse 10 says, God sees the work, God sees the love, God sees the service done in His name. So if you're not feeling anything else, feel that You are not out of the sight of God, even if you feel like you are out of the sight of man. When you serve God, God notices and he is pleased. He is worshipped. He desires for his people, though, to show what he calls in verse 11, earnestness in order to have assurance of endurance. And I love the way he says that in the original language, that word for earnestness means an excited fervor to accomplish something. In other words, there's work to be done. God has an accomplishment on the other side of that work. And you put your mind and your hands to accomplishing that work. God wants his people to be earnest. But then verse 12 warns us, don't be sluggish. Do you know what the people of Joseph were? They were sluggish. They were hesitant. They wanted to wait. They didn't want to be too quick about the promises of God. They wanted to move slowly. Don't do that. Don't look for the easy road. Trust God. Imitate those that have gone before you by living a life of faith for God's promises. Just think of a spiritual hero in your mind. Think of someone, even a contemporary someone, and you're like, this person is someone who's taking hold of the promises of God, who's growing in their faith. Do you think that happens by accident? Do you know how many things you have to say no to in order to say yes to God? And if you're not growing, the problem is you keep saying no to God and yes to everyone and everything else. You're double-minded in your commitments. The tribes of Joseph did not want to be earnest about pursuing the promises of God so they would not endure. They wanted to sit around. They wanted to wait until an easy way presented itself. Joseph tells them, though, there's no easy road. Friends, there is no microwave faith. Judah needed to do the work But the key is God promised to bless the work. It wasn't that they were going to do the work and fail. God said, do the work and you will succeed. But yet they hesitated. Then in Joshua 18, 1, we see the reality of the landscape. Text ends in verse 1 by saying, The land lay subdued before them. Do you realize that in different types of vernacular, that statement is made multiple times throughout the book of Joshua? This says the land was subdued. The book of Joshua uses this language as a reminder that God had promised to give it if they would simply trust him enough to take it. That's all that they had to do. God is faithful, and trust in that is shown through Movement. To take hold of what God has promised. Do not believe the lie that you will be disappointed by the promises of God. If you are double-minded, what you're going to do is, you're going to believe God for something that he hasn't promised, and when you can't take hold of it, you are disappointed with God But if you will believe God for what he has promised, I'm telling you, you will not be disappointed. But the reality is double-minded people always fill the vacuum with something that God hasn't promised. Rather, God has warned you against. And then when your life starts falling apart because you've been chasing the wrong promises, your default reaction is, how could God let this happen? You're the one that did it, not God. And don't start bringing into me the sovereignty of God and the sinfulness of man. I've looked into it a little bit more than you probably have. You can assume that and rest assured you'd be right. Blaming God for your sin is not a study in sovereignty. It's a demonic accusation against a holy God. And it only comes from the mind of an unbeliever. If you want to take hold of the promises of God, it requires an earnestness, an excited fervor to accomplish something. Because number three, friends, make no mistake. Obedience to God requires total commitment. Total commitment. Because spectators don't endure. Joshua 18, look at verses 3 and 4. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? provide three men from each tribe and I will send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land they shall write a description of it with view of their inheritances and then come to me key thing to point out is that verse 1 said the lay land subdued, and verse 3 is where Joshua was irritated. So don't read verse 1 and then say, well, they would already taken the land. No, verse 1 is just a statement that it was ripe for the picking. Verse 3, you see a frustrated leader looking at his people saying, what is your problem? What is your problem? Take the land. He has to once again push the nation to take the land. So I ask you, what promises of God are you procrastinating on? Focusing your life on directions God hasn't called you toward while the promises are ripe for harvest. Once you finish Joshua, if you read further to the book of Judges, you will see that what Joshua says in verse 3 never really ends. They're sluggish, they're not earnest. And the theme of Judges, it's recounted over and over. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. If you won't take the promises, you will stop thinking about the promises. And when you stop thinking about the promises, you stop trusting the promises. And when you stop trusting the promises, you start trusting yourself. And every man does that which is right in his own eyes. And I don't know if I need to tell you this, but that's not a good thing. (laughs) A whole lot of terrible happens in the book of Judges. I've heard people try to use certain passages in Judges to justify certain things. Please don't do that. It's a terrible book. Nothing good happens. It's all negative examples. When you won't live for the promises of God, when you ignore His revelation... You do that which is right in your own eyes and you ultimately end up reaping exactly what you sow. There's only one way to know you are living for God's righteousness and that is his revelation. That is his word and Israel had it and Joshua kept reminding them of it and God was clear with Israel. Take every square inch of the land. That procrastination that they had though was the result of ignoring God based on what seemed easier in the moment. And so I ask you, how often are you waiting for a better time to obey God? Are you waiting for it to be more convenient? It never will be. Are you waiting for when less sacrifice is required? Well, that would be a new version of Christianity that's never going to exist, friend. Are you waiting for when you feel a little bit better? Are you waiting for that magical thing that I always hear when things calm down a little bit? I've been waiting for things to calm down for 25 years. They just keep ramping up. Use whatever pithy excuse you want to. It's always the same. You are doing that which is right in your own eyes because you don't, at the end of the day, really care that much about the promises of God because if you did, you would be ordering your life around them. It's all for God's glory or it's all a waste. In Joshua 19 we see another juxtaposition take place. If you look at the beginning of 19, well, not really the beginning, it's really further towards the end, you'll see in verse 47, when the territory of the people of Dan, another tribe, was lost to them, The Hebrew is interesting there. It's lost by them, lost to them, but ultimately everyone agrees what happened is is Dan lost part of the land after they'd taken it. So the people of Dan went up and they had to take a different land. They were able to capture it. The realization is the same. Dan got sluggish. They didn't obey God fully and they paid the price. They lost something. Be warned, sin will cost you the promise if there's no repentance. You may believe the lie that it won't, but it always will. Then consider verses 49 through 51. Joshua's response to the promises of God. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, it's kind of like a parent at a meal. Once you're finished making sure everybody else got to eat, then you get to eat. And that's Joshua's leadership. He distributed the land to everybody else and then he got an allotment of the land. Verse 50, by command of the Lord they gave him the city that he asked, Temnoth Sarah, and the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. That's where I'll stop. That's what it looks like to be earnest. That city had been completely destroyed in battle. And Joshua said, I want the destroyed city because I'll just rebuild it in the name of God. So unlike Dan, unlike Judah, unlike the tribes of Joseph, Joshua goes in and he gets to building at an old age when it's his time, he's not sluggish. He's earnest. 1 Corinthians 10 31 has always been true north for my life. The text says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. A simple command with massive ramifications. According to the Apostle Paul, in this text, you have two options. You can either do everything in your life to God's glory or you can do it to your own. Even down to simple issues of eating and drinking. He says you're either eating a meal to get full Or you're eating a meal with the realization that God provided every bite and you are so thankful and you realize that the glory of God even exists in the dinner that you are eating tonight. When you do it to God's glory, things that look lost get rebuilt. It takes a total commitment though. But when you do it to your own glory, things fall apart. Territory is lost. Will you, though, live by faith, friend, or will you live for yourself? Trying to be double-minded. Just using the Christian faith as an opiate to convince yourself everything's okay when it's not. A few application points this morning. First, admit that partial obedience is still disobedience. Admit that. Because it is. In every moment of your life when you're not fully giving your life over to God, just be honest with yourself. Just don't lie. Secondly, cleanse yourself of double-mindedness. Get rid of it. And how do you do that? You draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Thirdly, do not hesitate when God says move. That's The biggest flaw, I see so many people who are comfortable in life. God says, Make a change, and you immediately think, But that might disrupt what I got going on. Yeah, it will. But that's a good thing. When God calls you to move, move. Don't question it, don't reason about it. Move. That's what faith looks like. And then finally, pursue God's call with maximum effort, with everything you've got. Whether you eat, whether you drink, do it all to the glory of God.